In June of 1971, Frederick Smith started his company, Federal Express, with the intention of having packages delivered overnight to nearly anywhere in the world. Armed with a $4 million inheritance and an additional $91 million that he garnered in venture capital, FedEx was born. Just three years after the company began, however, rapidly rising fuel costs put FedEx on the verge of bankruptcy. The company was hemorrhaging, losing over $1 million a month. Smith tried in vain to borrow additional funds, but was unsuccessful. He made one final pitch to General Dynamics for additional funding, but was refused, leaving FedEx more or less dead on the ground. Without fuel, FedEx planes were stranded on the tarmac with no hope of being able to deliver their shipments come Monday morning. Still, Smith refused to surrender. He took the last $5,000 in the company's coffers and flew to Las Vegas, where he used the company's remaining money to place what turned out to be winning blackjack bets, netting him an additional $27,000. It wasn't a huge windfall, but the total $32,000 was enough to refuel the planes and keep the business running for a few more days. And a few extra days was all that Smith needed. His success in Vegas allowed him enough grace to raise an additional $11 million, which kept his company afloat. In 1976, Federal Express reported its first profit to the tune of $3.6 million. Clearly, Smith took a big risk that paid off, but what about risks that don't pay off? And what about those instances where the anticipated or perceived risks paralyze people into not taking action? On today's episode of Think Significantly, we are going to explore those questions and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Significantly. I am Pete, and as always, I am joined by my audacious co-host, Melissa. Hello, everyone. Hey there, Pete. I am glad to be here. <laughs> I think we should... Uh... Definitely dive right into this uh, episode on risk because mama needs a new pair of shoes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing you with your with that green visor thing on. My bookie hat. Yes, yes, that it, it's it's actually quite fetching. Um, <laughs> let's get started by defining risk. All right, well, great place to start. So uh, to keep with this Vegas theme that I've completely randomly pulled out of the air, uh, <laughs> hit me. Okay, let's let's set the baseline for risk then as the probability of experiencing harm or hazards. And, and by hazards, I mean threats to people and the things they value. I can get down with that. So I've always thought of risk as uncertainty that matters. So with your definition of risk in mind, we could branch out and say that risk perception is our subjective judgment about how likely negative outcomes are based on our actions. Yeah, precisely. That. That is a calculation that we all do in our heads whenever we have a decision to make. What are the potential rewards and what hazards am I facing? Well, if only it was that cut and dry though, right? I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. I, I like the way you described it as this completely rational process, but you know as well as I do that it's usually not that simple. No, no, of course it isn't. We wouldn't have that much to talk about if we assessed risk via a decision matrix where we just put values to different things and spit out a mathematical answer. We people are very messy when it comes to how we internally process these things. Well, messy is a, is a great way to categorize it. And, and I have to tell you something, those, those mathematical 
assessments, by the way, just mm-hmm. don't forget that it's humans that are actually programming those. So mm-hmm. they, they only seem like they're devoid of any sort of, you know, messiness, if you will. Sure. Um, the old garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, um, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So, so that being said, um, I, I, I do believe that there is a way to boil down risk to a decision matrix which still has its issues. Um, that's a cognitive approach. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people definitely assess risk like that. Sure. But there's also an emotional approach where we're looking at it through our emotions and letting the way that we feel about the decision influence us, which is a less structured way to approach it, but probably more common, I'm guessing. Yeah. And, and anytime we add feelings into a situation, we lose objectivity and, and consistency, right? You're your emotional approach to risk could change based on what you heard on the radio on your drive to work. Uh, so speaking of that, uh, let's okay. expound on that idea about our emotions around risk decisions are affected by what you heard on the radio. Oh, is this, is this where you tell me that my radio station dial affects how risk averse I am? Oh, no, Pete. We all know that that hinges clearly on your Spotify playlist. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to get into music here because then I would tell all of our listeners about how we just rescued you from Napster. Um, <laughs> but what I do want to do is tie this to our recent episode about our affinity for gossip and the power mm. that gives the media. Uh, yes. that, that's uh, Let me think. That was episode 112. Rumor has it. Yes. And in that discussion, we talked about the influence the media has on what we focus on when it comes to scandal versus substance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we shared the media bias chart for that one um, to demonstrate how factual and how biased different outlets are and in what direction. We did. And apparently it was shared quite a bit because it stimulated a ton of commentary. So yay, go us. Yay. Yay. But my point is that that carries over into this conversation because our exposure to the media Uh, this is where the car radio comes in, Mm -hmm. uh, and how they paint issues affects our emotional processing of the information that we use to weigh in on on what risk is acceptable. And you know, that that makes me think a little of our conversation about Dunning-Kruger in episode 108. Dude, it's like old home week around here, right? Right. (laughs) I feel like we finally made it when we can start referencing ourselves. Absolutely. We're we're, we're recapping the season right here in the middle of this. (laughs) So, so tell me about the Dunning-Kruger and how you think it ties in. Sure. Dunning-Kruger will tell you that in a lot of instances, people are, are consuming just enough information to feel like they understand a topic when they actually aren't even close to fully comprehending it. Yeah, I, that's where I thought you were going with that. But I also think it goes just a little bit deeper than that because mm-hmm. Dunning-Kruger says that people with low ability at a task or with little information about a topic overestimate their own ability or their knowledge or their competence in that domain. Like the Mm -hmm. less, you know, the more you profess to know. Right. And because most people don't get the detailed nuance of the topic, they're going to respond differently than someone who is an expert on the subject. Exactly. So speaking of experts, thank Mm -hmm. you for that nice uh, unintended segue uh, Mm -hmm. for allowing me to merge into the flow of traffic here. My Uh, pleasure. (laughs) <laughs> by sharing information that I found um, as we were doing our individual research to gear up for this chat. Mm-hmm. So this research is coming at you from a guy named Peter Sandman, who is a professor at Rutgers University, just over the water and through the woods for me. Oh, nice. And his research 
is on the impact of the environment on our risk processing. And he uses the terms hazards and outrage to define risk. Now, the definition of those, particularly outrage, would take a long time to explain. I could tell you they took a long time for me to comprehend. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, suffice it to say that outrage encompasses dread, fear, and other non-rational emotion components. Okay, yeah, I can, I can see that. When I, when I picture someone who is outraged, I immediately think of the Incredible Hulk. And, and that guy doesn't scream cognition to me. No, he doesn't, no. What is he was split in his pants. You know, you never heard him yell, Hulk, think, you know, <laughs> as he suddenly uh, morphs into this like very cerebral guy taking a pull from his mahogany pipe and stroking his chin. Like right, right, right. Newton. Yeah. <laughs> in his in his crushed velvet smoking jacket. Yeah, that I've never heard him say that either, but it would make for some terrific fanfic. If you write it, I'll read it. I will consider that as soon as we get through the season, my friend, and I have a moment to breathe. Uh, fair, that's fair. Yes, as long as I'm not doing research for this. Yes, I, I can worry about some fanfic. So back to Sandman, who I'm okay. realizing has a pretty freaking spot on superhero name himself, right? He does, yeah. Um, he says, as we alluded to in our discussion, that the media can have an oversized influence on how risky different topics seem to people. Which tracks with our warnings about not letting the sensational nature of the story take attention from the substance or facts surrounding the story. You remember the uh, the panic that Y2K caused back at the turn of the century? I, I do remember this, yes. Right, the, the news reports were telling us that the world we knew it would end as soon as the new year started. But when the time came, I remember being severely underwhelmed when midnight came and went and everything stayed the same. You were underwhelmed. I, I imagine you had a stash of 20s hiding under your mattress just in case your ATM card didn't work. <laughs> Agreed. Like all that reporting was over the dire predictions and not on the work of the programmers that were fixing the issue before it ever became an issue. Right, right. Their efforts made it a non-event. But the media coverage had people filling their bunkers with non-perishable foods and withdrawing money from their banks to put under their mattresses, apparently. Not that I had any to do that with, but maybe I would have. I don't know. Well, we were young. We were, we were, we were soldiers once and young. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, what's the media going to say? There's no reason to panic. Go back to your day. I mean, that doesn't sell. So <laughs> I think we could both agree that we could categorize this as an emotional response to a perceived risk that was heavily influenced by the way it was covered in the media. Yeah, totally agree. The, the, the coverage was, was inescapable and dire. You know, thank goodness this was before social media. Oh my God, I, we would have all been baking sourdough. Yes, I agree. <laughs> at the at a minimum, I, a I think minimum. we would have had like it would have looked like the movie Warriors. I think. <laughs> so did did Sandman's study point out any specific ways that the media changes the way we evaluate risk? It, it's it's almost as if you've read the study itself and had to slog through <laughs> his definitions, which I was like, I'm sorry, what is he saying? Yeah, all right. So uh, you want to hear him? I know I would, and I'm and I'm betting everyone listening would too. All right, betting. Aha. Aha. All right. So here it goes. Bottom line up front. Yes. Sandman found a whole host of ways that the media affects our risk perception. And some of them, like the amount of coverage or the tone of the coverage and the framing of the risks, though those should probably already make sense to everybody. People probably expected those. 
logically, it follows that if you see a lot of coverage that is telling us in an urgent way that some disaster is going to befall our families, it's going to have an effect on us, right? Cue the cortisol. Right, exactly. But, but there were others in the study that were more subtle. So take, for instance, the source of the story. If you hear something on CNN or Fox or the BBC, whatever your preferred news outlet of choice is, you're probably going to put more stock in it than if you heard something on an infomercial. Mm-hmm. Even the format or medium through which the information is being delivered affects our risk perception. Is it an anchorman delivering the story as an uninterrupted item or do we have a panel discussion where you have multiple points of view being expressed? Oh, wow. Yeah, those, those are things I really hadn't considered having an effect before. Well, and if you want to talk about how the media influences us, well, I can actually get very super nerdy here and splice this out even further and say that there are a number of studies that have found that there are differences in how influential messages are depending on whether they're delivered through mass media or through interpersonal communications. I'm going to guess that interpersonal communications are going to be more influential. Well, you should put money on this like the FedEx guy did. To, to keep gas in my airplanes? Or, or helicopters. I mean, wherever you spend your gas money is your business, Pete. Yes. <laughs> but back to me being nerdy, which is where I'm most comfortable, of course. <laughs> um, there is something called the impersonal impact hypothesis. And this hypothesis states that Media messages influence people's perception of risk for society as a whole Mm -hmm. have a very limited impact of people's perceptions of their own risk. So like, in other words, if a media outlet puts out damning news, I'm Mm. assuming that they're talking to the others, like not me. Uh, But in uh. contrast, interpersonal communication definitely influences my personal risk assessment. So Like if you were to inform me of a personal risk, I would be more likely to view that information as applying to myself. As expected. I really should have placed that bet. Darn it. Free for your gas money. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) All right. But but hold on. But hold on. Actually, but actually there's an asterisk here. So before you put all your chips on black and Uh I'm reaching here because I'm not exactly sure that that's what you're supposed to do in Vegas because I don't know if you go there. But, but I think that I've seen a movie or two, Um, there is something called the differential impact hypothesis. And that hypothesis proposes that media messages can have an influence on the perception of personal risk. If the message is personally relevant, or if the individual has a social or parasocial relationship with the media source, like, like if a, if a celebrity is briefing us, you know, one of those celebrities that we follow, worship, stalk, you know, that has cred, if you will. So the, so the common thread here between those two hypotheses is that identification is the key to determining personal relevance? Yeah, exactly. Wait, yeah, way to pull that thread together. Yeah, you're, you're either identifying with the personal risk, like maybe you lost a loved one to a certain disease. So now when you hear messaging about it, you're going to give it more consideration. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, your favorite NBA player has something to say about a topic. Then the mass media message will function like interpersonal communication. Right. I get it. We're, we're going to take that message more to heart, if you will, even if it's not rational. Right. Yes. Even if it's not rational. Exactly. Um, you know, and as with most of our topics that we talk about on things significantly, it, it all comes back to perception. If we feel like we're susceptible to this risk, our perception of that risk and our reaction to it, you know, it's going to be skewed. Mm, you know, this ties in nicely with a 
a study that I came across um, from researchers Christina Hengen and Jörg Alpers from the University of Mannheim in Germany. Mm -hmm. They looked at how stress affects risk-taking with a special focus on people with social anxiety. So we know that stress affects risk, risk perception. I mean, we just talked about that in detail, but they, they were looking at it, what, with that extra level anxiety and this changed the effect? That's what you're selling me? Yes, yeah. They, so, so in the study, they had two groups of subjects as, as, as studies do. Um, some had low social anxiety and some had high social anxiety. Uh, and they divided uh, into two groups with a mixture of both. Um, and then they had them participate in a risk reward game involving inflating balloons. Uh, the task they were assigned is referred to as the BART, mm -hmm. Balloon Analog Risk Task. And I share that with you because I know you love a good acronym. I do love a good acronym, but I'm over here smiling because um, the BART is actually a, a fairly well-known computer simulation used to model real-world risk behavior um, by conceptually balancing the potential for reward versus loss. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What, <laughs> what, what she said, people. Here I am thinking I'm bringing something new to the party and, and you're like, oh yeah, that old thing. Sure. I know all about that. Oh, the BART. <laughs> oh, we go way back. Me and Bart. Did that, yeah, yeah. Did that Thursday. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's used quite a bit. Yeah. All right. So, so tell me how they use it in the study. Okay. So, so for the BART, the students were rewarded for each pump of a computer simulated balloon. The larger the balloon was inflated, the bigger the reward would be. But as with a normal balloon, overfilling it would cause it to pop and all the rewards would be lost. Right. This is a, right. The BART is like a price is right game for sure. Okay. It, it is. It is. It's like mountain climber, but different. <laughs> but different. Right. They then introduced stress into the task. Okay. Some of the participants were told that they would have to deliver a speech at the end of the experiment. Without the added stressor of having to deliver a speech, there wasn't any difference between the groups. But get this, uh -huh. under stress, the low socially anxious group took more risks and earned more money, while the high socially anxious individuals did not. Those high socially anxious folks remained more cautious and did not change their risk-taking posture under social stress. Okay, like for someone who understood BART, I'm now trying to get my arms around the study. This is like, <laughs> now you got me. She got me. Um, all right. <laughs> so, so let me get this straight. When facing stress, people with low social anxiety were more likely to focus on the potential reward that taking risks could earn them. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I feel like these are the people that we were talking about, like in episode 104, when we talked about the YOLO, like economy, with the, what's yes. going on with that? Yes. No, that's a, that's a great point, right? The people that responded to the pandemic by trying to make their passion, their career, that's a huge risk, but the reward is great. Well, as long as you have low social anxiety, the reward is great. But this now makes me wonder if there were some people who are like, box out of their YOLO moment because, you know, they had that added stress of the pandemic. I mean, it's just something to consider. Sure. Based on, based on this study, I would absolutely think that nearly all of the people who took that leap would score low in social anxiety. Their, their emotional assessment of the risk, given the stressor of the pandemic, 
would make the reward seem worth the potential cost. But to your point, those with high social anxiety probably did not. Well, this is definitely something that I'm going to earmark for additional research. I'm just, I'm curious about how these two things kind of dovetail. And you know me, I got to know. I got to know. (laughs) You are certainly the most curious person that I know, and I have no doubt that you're going to run this down. But before we lose this thread, I want to highlight that the risk in the BART was the same for all the respondents. But under additional stress, only one group saw taking risk as the way to get ahead. For the purposes of this discussion, this is more proof that the emotional calculations can really be a huge influence on the decision-making process. That, that's definitely true. Emotion does make things more complicated. One of the joys of being human, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, it, it isn't just our emotions that can throw us curveballs. There are definitely things that make our cognitive processes muddier as well. But that's the area where we're, we're weighing the situation based on facts and logic. This, this should be when the hard facts dominate those squishy emotions. One would think, um, but, and, but, but alas, hard facts are still not immune to being tainted. Mm. Cognitive processes are, are supposed to be, and forgive me for using this phrase, fair and balanced, but <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, but even here, you know, we've got obstacles to being truly objective. Okay, let's, let's hear what you've got. So I think we first need to understand how our brains are assessing risk because we actually have two parallel systems at work when we're doing so. And um, one of those systems is is super primitive. You talk about lizard brain. Oh, Um, okay. It's called the amygdala. Mm -hmm. And I know you know what this is because I know that you are the one who told me how to pronounce it. Um, (laughs) It's it's right above your brain stem in the medial temporal lobe as, as amygdalas go. Right. And when we see or hear or smell something that feels like a potential danger, the amygdala is what reacts immediately by pumping out adrenaline and those other hormones to trigger all of those physical manifestations of, of you know, reaction, like the uh, sweaty palms, the increased heart right. rate, sure. which is super helpful if you're accurately <laughs> assessing the risk. But as we've already covered, just because something feels risky does not mean it is. And I find it interesting that you bring this up because I probably would have lumped this into the the squishy emotions category, but you're telling me it's straight up brain work. It is. Yes. So, so working in tandem with the amygdala is the neocortex and it is the more advanced part of the brain that has developed relatively recently. It acts as a governor to some degree on our reflexive fight or flight response while we work out a more sophisticated analysis of the situation and our options for handling it. The neocortex can reason. It's, it's intelligent. It's analytical. I got you. So, so to put this in, a, in super easy terms, the amygdala is dealing in black and white and the neocortex is responsible for the shades of gray. That would be a great way of putting it. And, and one might think, well, you know, why don't we just turn over the reins to the neocortex since it's so much more sophisticated? But here's the real deal. Uh, it is much slower and it is very hard for the neocortex to outright contradict the amygdala. Yeah, I've, I've uh, experienced this myself now that you're, you know, getting into it, get, getting into the explanation of it. You know, in my, in my time as a farm kid, I learned pretty quickly to recognize the sound of an irrigation pump that wasn't primed. And that sound tells me to this day to shut it down before the motor burns up. You only have to do that once to learn that lesson. Right. And now your body is saying, 
you know, your ear is saying, oh, this happened before and I wasn't ready, but I will be next time. It's, it's really no different than getting a vaccination where you develop sort of antibodies to fight off the real version of the illness. But I have to imagine that, that it's much harder for the brain to deal with a multitude of lifelong fears than, say, a childhood vaccine wandering along looking for a chickenpox strain. Right. It is a lot for the brain to handle. And no matter what your take on evolution is, we have to remember that the neocortex is new. It has not worked out all of its kinks quite yet. It's, it's being beta tested like, like our podcast. <laughs> so, our, so our great, 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 great grandchildren should thank us for being the harbingers of being able to predict the timing and location of dangers before they actually happen. Yes, I'm sure you can expect those thank you cards in the mail any day now. <laughs> yes. So while we're, we're still refining the neocortex, we still have to generate close to optimal answers quickly with limited cognitive capabilities. Oh boy, I was wondering how we were going to work this in and, and now I can see it as clearly as the Hollywood sign now. And the way we do this is with heuristics, which are shortcuts, rules of thumb, stereotypes, and biases. Folks, please note that Pete recently uncovered a list of, what was it, Pete? A hundred heuristics? It was, yeah, roughly. It was there, mm -hmm. plus or minus, yeah. Yeah. And while he has a newfound and unbridled interest in all things heuristics, <laughs> just know, for, for purposes of this discussion, to quote Pete, these are little hacks that allow us to make judgments without integrating all the information available. Um, you should also know that Pete now has a brand new hobby. Yes, it's your right. That's right. Every day I'm gonna I'm have like a little calendar with a pull-off thing. It's gonna be a different heuristic every day. <laughs> Working in the conversations everywhere I go. That's but to be to be completely fair to heuristics, I do want to point out that the term heuristic is of Greek origin, meaning to find out or to discover, which helps to paint heuristics in a better and probably more accurate light. So folks, Pete not only has a new hobby, Pete is now an advocate for heuristics. <laughs> he's getting shirts made if you are interested in one. He's not I'm real good on picking correct sizing, but <laughs> yeah. I'm part of the heuristics lobby is what I am. There you go. Right. <laughs> um, yes. Heuristics affect how we think about risks, how we evaluate the probability of future events, how we consider costs, how we make trade-offs. Um, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put your newfound knowledge to a test here. Okay. All right. Uh, how about you give us an example from your vast well of heuristic knowledge, so that we can have a shared concept of what we're talking about here? Okay. Yeah. I'm. I'm well. I feel like I'm up to this challenge. How about we talk about the availability heuristic? It's as good as any, since I have no idea what you're about to say. <laughs> All right. Well, the the availability heuristic is when we think a risk is more likely to occur when we are more aware of that risk, okay? So a good example of this would be if you knew someone or, or, or better yet, if you knew multiple someone who got concussed while skateboarding, you would think that skateboarding carries a higher risk of concussion than is actually true. I started laughing when we were concussed. Oh my God, I don't know if I've ever heard that as a verb. Yes, <laughs> all right, you don't wanna be concussed or vanquished. No, so, right, right, yeah, yes. right. Um, I did a list of things to avoid. That's right. All right. Well, wear a helmet, folks. You don't want to be messing with the moneymaker where you're dropping into the YOLO bowl. All right. <laughs> that's, you're exactly right. Hey, can I do one more? Well, you've been mulling over a list of 100 of them. So I, I feel like it's only fair that I can give you airtime for one more. Sure. Okay. Well, let's go with my one of my personal favorites, the 
representativeness heuristic, which is a, it's a mental shortcut that we use when estimating probabilities. So with, with this heuristic, individuals make the mistake of thinking two like events are more closely related than they are. A real world example of this could be homeowners who purchase homeowners insurance after a catastrophic event has occurred, right? Research has been done on this. And the, the conclusion is that individual policyholders overweigh the possibility of another catastrophic event occurring by nearly 50% after one has just occurred. Even if that catastrophe was a one-off and like hasn't happened in the past three generations? Even if. Hmm. All right. Well, you're, I think you're proving my point. Heuristics definitely have their place. They're super useful, but they can also give us a bit of a skewed perspective. True. Yeah, it's very true. Many heuristics are crazy useful, but in the context of a modern society, they can fail us. Our social and technological evolution has vastly outpaced our evolution as a species, and our brains are stuck with heuristics that are better suited to living in primitive, small family groups. And when those heuristics fail, our feeling of security diverges from the reality of security in some instances. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So how about we get to the helpful part of the podcast, uh, as we like to say? Well, what are our options? This or the <laughs> other heuristics on your list? <laughs> and, and by the way, I'm not just making fun of you because you know that I have like 10 more pages of information on risk that I want to share. This was a, this was like a booming topic. I, no, I know you do. I've, I've got any more heuristics to share. You've got pages <laughs> of stuff to talk about, but we're going to have to save that for part D. Part D. All right. Okay. Well, first of all, we've already discussed that it's important to understand how the brain processes risk. And we've only scratched the surface here. I can tell you that new research suggests that there's even more going on than we, than we originally thought and new stuff's coming out every day. So suffice it to say that we all have biases that make us under or overestimate risk. And we need to take those into account, even though, as we have alluded to risk-taking may be conscious or unconscious. Right. Right. When it's unconscious, you may not even be aware of the risk or how you are framing it. So be mindful that even when you are doing an old school risk assessment, right, that little red, amber, green sort of matrix thing, your conclusions are limited to conscious factors, thereby excluding the potential and often powerful impacts of unconscious biases. This is exactly what I was saying in the beginning when we're talking about those mathematical formulas. I'm like, mm -hmm. don't forget that it's still a human either right. coding that or filling out the red, amber, green matrix. Right. Yes. But as they say in the military, stay alert, stay alive. <laughs> you, you also have to factor in your personality when considering risk, right? A nod to what you just said about us over or underestimating risk. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is something that we didn't get into earlier, but it definitely needs to be factored into how likely we are to take risks and the type of risks that we take. Research has shown that people who are impulsive, sensation seekers, aggressive, or even highly sociable may be especially likely to take risks. I don't think that comes as any surprise, really. No, probably not. Just understand that assessing a situation and its risks are not enough. You also have to account for your personality when you are gauging risk. I do know that there are some tools out there that can help us uncover some of these biases that we might not be aware of. Yeah, like the kids say, there's an app for that. I don't think the kids say that at all, but... <laughs> 
because they just do it. They don't, they don't have to say it because it just goes oh, yeah, it's nature. Probably true. Yeah. That's right. Um, but I, what I want to add is I think it's important to remember that risk is not inherently negative. This can bias us against taking smart risks when we frame risk as being, you know, having a negative connotation. Mm. This is where definitely understanding your temperament and your risk tolerance temperature really comes in handy because if you're overly risk averse, you might need to make a conscious effort to remember that risk-taking may be adaptive and may even lead to positive outcomes like, like, like the FedEx example in the beginning. Right, right. And I'm going to wager that there are tools for that as well. Tools, apps, whatever it be. Yes, exactly. I'm sure there are. Um, and while we cannot become experts at managing risk with these lizard brains of ours, what we can do is become more resilient at bouncing back from failure, which will help calibrate how we respond to things that feel risky. Yeah. Yeah. There's no shortage of articles on bolstering your resiliency. And honestly, in my opinion, that's got to be the more important skill to have, because as Einstein said, if you've never failed, you've never tried anything new. You know, Pete, I will bet you money that Adam Grant puts out an article on resiliency this coming week. <laughs> I mean, he is, he is known to talk about resiliency, but it would be curious timing if he put it out in conjunction with this episode. It would be so curious. Yeah. That's right. All so right. Weird. So how about we tie a bow on this for now so we can let our listenership go scroll to the app store. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure everyone's pulling up the, uh, that, their Apple store to find, to find how to calculate risk as an app. They're probably, uh, they're uh, probably seeing if they have, there's a risk filter that they can put on their selfies. <laughs> not this crowd, right. not, not our listeners, Pete, yeah. not us. No, no ma'am. No, ma'am. No. We do not mess with Snapchat on this show. <laughs> you want to send us out? Sure. Pete and I would love to continue this discussion with you on all the social media, except for Snapchat. Yeah. None of that. No, none of that. No TikToks either. Yes. No, uh-uh. So on the social media platforms that we do have, uh, talk to us about what do you think about when making decisions where risk is involved? What's the last decision you made where you consciously weighed the risk beforehand? We'd also be interested in what part of risk processing takes precedence for you. Have you ever noticed that hearing a news report changed your approach to risk? What other aspects of risk analysis would you have included in our conversation? And remember, we have 15 pages of stuff we did not get to. So that's chances right. are it's on there somewhere. So stand by for part D. Yeah, that's right. Well, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram at ThinkSigPod. You can find us on the Facebook when it's up and the LinkedIn by searching for Think Significantly. If you enjoyed our conversation, please invite your curious friends to listen. We will be back next week to wrap up this season of Think Significantly with an episode chock full of all the things that ended up on the cutting room floor. Which talk about feeling like a very risky move. In the words of one of my best gal pals, oi. <laughs> <laughs> all right, until then, we encourage everyone to think significantly about the world around you. Na, 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 na.